Welcome to season four of the Fit Farming Food Mom podcast. Connie is a world champion powerlifter, former bodybuilder, and an elite trainer and nutrition coach. As a movement enthusiast and health nerd, she is here on this show to speak with educated guests and dive into the realm of all things health, fitness, mindset, and everything in between. If you enjoy this show, please do us a huge favor by smashing the like or subscribe button and leaving a review. Now, let's get to the show. Hey friends, welcome back to another episode. I am so excited that you're going to be spending the next hour with myself and Dr. Stephanie Estima. She is a doctor of chiropractic with a special interest in metabolism, body composition, functional neurology, and female physiology. She is also the author of the best-selling book, The Betty Body, where she shares her proven strategies to help women jumpstart and calibrate their metabolism, revive their libido, rest guilt-free, and elevate their emotional well-being. Stephanie and I have so much in common. She did several bodybuilding shows or a bodybuilding show. We both like to train. We're both into the same nutrition strategies and hormonal stuff. So this is a really awesome episode, and I'm excited that you get to join us today for that. Before we get rolling with the episode, I just want to remind you, the sponsor of this podcast is... LMNT or Element Electrolytes. They are wonderful. They have sodium, potassium, and magnesium, and no added sugars or garbage. So they are my go-to when I need a drink with a little bit of flavor or when I have a sweet tooth. They are also my go-to for my kids' sports games because we've got all these parents bringing things that are chock full of sugar and so bad for your kids' health. I want to bring things to the table that are actually great and supportive of their exercise goals. So I bring a bottle of water and some LMNT. I am that mom. But if you want a free sample pack or a free gift, you can pop on over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Connie. And that is drinklmnt.com forward slash Connie. Check them out. I think you get a free gift or you can sign up for a free sample pack and give it a try for yourself. Well, without further ado, here is my episode with myself and Dr. Stephanie Estima. All right, Dr. Stephanie, super excited to have you on the show. We have so much in common and we will dive down that possibly here uh, in the podcast, but I'm excited to have you on the show today. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. All right. So you have quite the story and we actually have similar stories. Uh, we both were figure competitors. We both had a little bit of a crisis after we were doing our fitness escapades. And so I guess let's kind of dive into who you are, what you what you do, and a little bit about your story to kind of give our listeners an idea of who they're listening to today. Sure. Yeah. I'm a women's health uh, educator, uh, uh, classically trained as a chiropractor. So have always had a long-standing love for the brain, the neuromusculoskeletal system. So the brain muscles, bones, and all the, all the things in between, uh, joints, ligaments, tendons, all the things, uh, spent, uh, let me think 16, 17 years in private practice in a brick and mortar, uh, clinic and, for many years ran nutrition programs out of uh, the clinic as well, because I'm of the, um, we'll say philosophical uh, premise that certainly people would come to me for physical uh, ailments, um, but we need to address physical um, ailments with chemical ailments so that we usually can uh, address those through the diet. And then of course, emotional and spiritual um, ailments as well. So I have always run sort of nutrition programs because of my love of the brain, became very interested and fascinated with the ketogenic diet um, for its dopamine enhancing cognitive mood altering sort of benefits that, um, uh, that it's very well known for. I mean, the original history of the ketogenic diet, we don't have to talk about it, but you know, originally was before, uh, anti-seizure medications were developed, they would use the ketogenic diet as a way to control that, um, these grand mal or these tonic clonic seizures. So, um, 
found the ketogenic diet, started running a program uh, in-house and wanted to bring that to kind of a larger stage. Uh, even in the clinic was noticing differences in the female response to the ketogenic diet versus the male response uh, to the ketogenic diet. So uh, men had an extraordinarily uh, easier time uh, dropping weight. It would just be like, I'll just not have a carb from, you know, one meal. I'm like, whoop, there's 20 pounds. <laughs> this thing's great, doc. And, you know, like the, of course that's, that's a, an extreme exaggeration, but, you know, we would have uh, husband and wife couples that would, you know, same environment, eating the same foods, um, appropriate, you know, uh, maybe not isocaloric, but like appropriate calories for the male and the female, um, that I had designed. And then the guy would come in a couple of weeks later, having dropped like a significant amount of weight, five, 10, sometimes 15 pounds. And the female, same environment, same foods, um, you know, matching appropriate uh, calories with her. And she might've dropped maybe one or two uh, pounds, let's say. Sometimes it was more, you know, depending on the um, the size of the woman, but there was a very clear pattern um, almost immediately that uh, women were responding differently uh, to this, to this intervention. Um, I myself, uh, because I refused, I don't know if it's, I sort of jokingly say this, but I refused to believe that I was a female. Like I was like, well, I'm going to do it. Like all the guys are doing it this way. I'm going to do it this way. Um, kind of messed up, uh, sort of noticing like changes in my own, uh, cycle as well. And have struggled with my cycle, uh, my menstrual cycle in its entirety, not just the bleed week, but just the whole kind of 29 days, let's say, um, my, like almost my whole life. And so started, um, there were a few things that came together at the same time. Um, my clinic burned down. I was going through a divorce. I went to, um, Italy at the time, uh, found that shocker, uh, sunshine, getting lots of low level activity through the day, uh, reducing my stress, being with people that made me happy, um, actually improved my cycle while I was there. I actually got my period while I was on that, that trip. And I came back home thinking, okay, so I know that the environment plays a huge role. Like, you know, everything I always joke and say, like, everything's better in Italy. Like the food is better. The gelato is better. All the things are better. Um, but it's still the same body, right? So it's still the same body, let's say that was in Italy that menstruated like a goddess. How could I bring that back to, uh, North America, let's say I live in Toronto, Canada. So how could I bring that back to Toronto? And how could I bring that back to my patients, my female patients who had already indicated that they were struggling. And so that's sort of how my method, like my method, you might say, uh, was born where I started altering foods and exercises, uh, to time it with sort of the ebbs and flows of a woman's cycle. So that's kind of, uh, the origin story, if you will. Uh, and then that has, um, there, I wrote a book, uh, about it. Uh, it's called the Betty body. And I run a, you know, I have a podcast like you, a podcast, um, host, and I talk about this and other topics, but this is a, a very, uh, huge, uh, point of interest for me is the sexual dimorphisms or how women are, are different, um, than men across a, a vast many verticals. So I'm sure we'll talk about today, nutrition. I'm sure we'll talk about exercise and training. Um, even our, you know, um, emotional response to things can be, can be different. We tend to females tend to, uh, experience more negative emotions versus our, our male counterparts. And, you know, if you look at, you know, some of the, you know, more maybe sad or upsetting stats around divorce, we hear 50% of marriages end in divorce. Well, 70% of those marriages that end in divorce are initiated by women. So it is much harder for a woman to kind of get over something, uh, maybe than it is for, uh, for a man. So that's, that's where I'm interested in. I kind of nerd out on all of those, all of those topics. Well, this is going to be a great conversation because that is also an area that I'm really interested in as well. I have some colleagues that are also huge into the female cycle because what we don't realize is we're so vastly different from men. And I think some of us know that, but but really the majority of women don't have any idea of how much. And I think that's also why we're such a medical mystery. Honestly, there are so little studies on the female body. Yes, there are some out there, but it's, we are far less studied than our male counterparts. So um, today I'm hoping we can dive in and talk a little bit about 
eating and nutrition and fitness and all the things revolving around the certain times in our cycle. Because what women don't realize is a lot of those cravings we're having or the feelings we're having around exercise, things like that, they are all actually related to certain hormonal outputs at certain times in our cycle. Absolutely. Yeah. And I would say um, if you are trying to eat the same way and train the same way through your cycle, um, well, uh, let's even back up. What If you're not tracking your cycle, uh, maybe that's a good place to start. I am, I hear almost daily um, from listeners of the podcast or the book or however people find me on Instagram, uh, that they've just started tracking their cycle in their thirties or their forties. And thank you so much for remind, like, why wasn't I told this earlier? That's the through line here that why wasn't I told this earlier? Why isn't this taught in school? Why am I learning this from an Instagram post? You know, <laughs> And, you know, to your point around, you know, females being researched, I do think it's getting better, but there is definitely a bias in research. It's kind of like me search, right? It's like, you know, the, the funding that is often where we get funding from, uh, is often to answer a question and just the fact that a woman menstruates can be considered and the hormonal sort of fluctuations over the cycle can be considered a confounding variable and, and often are excluded. And I think it, it was, uh, I want to say it's 2017. Uh, I might have to fact my check, fact check myself there, but I believe it's 2017 where the NIH mandated that women had to be included in studies. So that's not that far off in our history. We're talking about five, six years now uh, where women had to be included uh, in research. And of course, when you look at the lag between research being done to when it is integrated often into clinical practice is somewhere between 20 and 25 years. So um, yeah, there's definitely some work to be done there. So back to your original question around, I believe your original question was how things are different over the course of the cycle. Um, you know, we can, I don't know how deep you want to get into this, but we can certainly kind of parse it out week by week, if that makes sense for you. Yeah, that sounds great. I say we start right with when we begin our bleed and then walk our way through it. I think that's the way most women are familiar with it, if they are familiar with it. Yeah. So uh, often women will conflate the two, even just the word period, like I have my period and my cycle. So your cycle is the entirety. It's the 29 or the 30 or the 32 days, 26 days, whatever uh, of your cycle where you go from bleed to bleed, right? So like day one of when you see blood uh, in your cup or pad or tampon, or you're expecting it because your app told you that it's coming. Uh, the first day that you see blood is day one of your cycle. And most women will bleed for an average, somewhere between three and seven days. So there's some variation there. All of that is normal. Um, when we think about what constitutes a normal bleed, you will see typically um, darker blood in the beginning of the bleed week. Um, may, it may be very uh, almost mar maroon-like. Uh, and then over the course of the week, let's say it's three days, four days, five days, six days, you'll find it will go from like a maroon color to sort of like a brighter or maybe a lighter red. And then it kind of turns into brown towards the end of it, which is just old kind of oxidized um, blood. Um, we shouldn't really see many clots. Uh, some clots are okay, but nothing bigger than like a dime. If you're, you know, kind of envisioning uh, a coin, like, you know, a nickel or a quarter size clot is, is large. So we want nothing kind of bigger than a dime. And then you don't want to be changing, you know, in terms of flow or heaviness, you know, in terms of, again, constituting normal with some consideration for variation, but we want to be thinking about, you should be able to wear a cup or a pad uh, or a tampon uh, somewhere around three to four hours without needing to change it. So if you're changing it more often than that, um, if your flow is very, very heavy, as mine was for years, I used to have to bring in two pairs of pants to the clinic and I would have to bring in like a whole wad of pads and tampons. I would like kind of double up on pads and I would do all these crazy things to try not to bleed through my pants. Never worked. I always did. Um, so thinking about kind of heaviness and I, I bring those up because obviously the women that are listening, you've only ever had your period 
to compare it to. I mean, unless you're kind of sitting there talking with your girlfriends and if you are actually, that would be awesome. That's actually what I would love. But um, most women don't discuss the quality of their bleed with their girlfriends. They just, it's just something that we deal with quietly. Um, so you all only ever have this N of one, right? It's you only ever have your own lived experience in terms of what you think is normal. So it might be normal for you. Um, but it's not, let's say, um, clinically normal. So I, I kind of bring up those, um, uh, those parameters for the women that are listening to kind of think about their own bleed week or, you know, when they are on their period and, and see if those fit. Um, and I actually want to interrupt you just there for one moment, because I think this is something that's really important. When women have heavy cycles, they tell their doctor and what's the doctor, the first thing their doctor does is says, oh, well, we'll just put you on birth control with oftentimes not looking further into imbalances such as like estrogen imbalances or progesterone issues. And so then they're just throwing basically fuel on a fire sometimes if they have a dysfunctional hormone pattern. Yeah. And we have to, we have to love our medical doctors for the effort, right? It's like E, you get an E for effort because they, they're trying to help their patient in the paradigm that they know how. Um, and the other thing we, we want to consider of course, is that they actually don't have time. You know, they just like, they have 50 other patients that they're seeing that day. Uh, and they're already 30 minutes behind and they, they just don't have the, like just the way that the system is set up, mm -hmm. it's not set up for individualized care. It's, it's a, it's a, uh, coding system where we are running as many codes through as we can in the shortest amount of time as we can. And so, uh, most medical doctors that are friends of mine, that are colleagues of mine got into medicine for the same reason that I became a chiropractor was, is because they wanted to fundamentally help people. And I still, mm -hmm. I still adhere to that tenant. I do believe that most medical doctors, at least the ones that I have been exposed to have that fundamental, uh, love for humanity. But I think what happens is once you get into the system, which is not really a healthcare system, it's a sick care system, mm -hmm. uh, they, they don't have the capacity to do the work that they can. So you're right in that often what happens, uh, we see this with our beautiful teenagers, right? We see this with our girls that are like 16, 17, they get a kind of a surge of testosterone around that time, just developmentally. And they kind of look like they have a bit of PCOS. Maybe they miss a period or two or starting to get, uh, you know, hormonal acne, something like that. And they get a, they get a script for, uh, a, a, an or, you know, an, an oral contraceptive, let's say, or an IUD, uh, could be also, um, hormonal, or it could be like a copper IUD, let's say. And to your point, I think the point that you're trying to make is that the, the doctor doesn't have the, uh, capacity to ask why. So is there a, um, insufficiency of progesterone, let's say, is there a, you know, is there too much estrogen relative to progesterone in the luteal phase of the cycle? You were talking about estrogen dominance. That's what, mm -hmm. that's what you were referring to. Um, are, is the person androgen dominant? Do they have an upregulation of testosterone to dihydrotestosterone or do, are, do they have, I mean, there's so many, there's so many reasons why someone's menstrual cycle, um, might be off. And the pill is often sort of a blanket solution. I mean, I've had, I've had women, uh, who were 50 put on the birth control pill. It's like, why are you putting a 50 year old on the birth control pill? Um, so, so you, so to your point, I think that, um, that is an, a common solution. I think a better question that we might want to be asking as patients is why is this happening? And we can't delegate, and this maybe comes to another philosophical premise, uh, which is a, a totally different you know, rabbit hole to go down, but we no longer really have the luxury to delegate our health to our healthcare providers. We have to be informed so that we go into whatever doctor, whatever healthcare provider uh, you are dealing with, you go in well-researched. So the person, when they say, well, I'd like to put you on the pill, or I'd like to, you know, here's some other intervention, you have some level of familiarity with that. And even if you don't, you can take the time to say, okay, I've never heard of that solution before. I'm going to go and research it so that I can make an informed decision. Or you might say, tell me about what some of the risks as well as some of the benefits. This is one of the things that we see 
so often, particularly in female or women's medicine, is that we marry ourselves to the benefits. It's like, yay, no period. But we, but we divorce ourselves from the consequences, right? And so this can have, for some women, you know, the birth control pill is a godsend. You know, for some women, it's, it's just the, like, they feel better. They, you know, helps with the hormonal acne and the, all the things. And in some women, it can make them feel so miserable. Um, so there is sort of a phenotype. There is, there is like a, a, a pattern of a woman who, when she gets on the birth control pill feels orders of magnitude worse than before she started. So we want to be, it's not a, it's not a catch-all. It's not for everyone. Um, and we want to be aware of some of the, um, limitations that something exogenous and not regularly cycling, um, can, can have on the body. So I know that that's a bit of a tangent and we were, no, uh, that's, yeah. that's great. Actually, it's a great thing. And I think that the part I want to highlight there is being an informed consumer is really important. And in the ages of the internet, granted, there's some bad in information out there, but overall, in the end, if you do enough research, you should be able to find some kind of information on at least understanding how your body works and what things impact other things and stuff like that. And to add to that, uh, what is it now? The average provider has seven minutes to work with each patient. So that's not a whole lot to get to know somebody's life story and what's going on. It's It's got to happen fast. And if you have questions for your doctor, you know, depending on you know, the doctor's constitution and the way that they run their practice, you might call the office ahead of time and say, Hey, I actually have quite a few questions. Um, so I have this appointment on, you know, Monday at 1245, let's say, um, is he going to, or is she going to have time to answer my questions or do I need to book a longer appointment? So maybe there's also some flex and that might be an option for you, uh, to just inquire with the receptionist or the person at the front or whoever's managing the appointments. Is there other types of appointments that I might book in with? I mean, I know that when I first, um, you know, when I first moved uh, here uh, from uh, from Montreal, I was interviewing like there were sort of like these um, I don't know what they're called, not meet and greets, but kind of like we were interviewing. Certainly when I was pregnant, I was interviewing different OBGYNs. I was interviewing, uh, you know, I, I wanted a midwife and I was on a wait list for a midwife. So I was interviewing OBGYNs in the interim. And there was like these meet and greet appointments where I got had the opportunity to sit down with them, ask them about their philosophy of care what would happen, you know, if they were off and I went into labor, you know, all these questions. So there are different types of appointments that you might also explore if you feel like you need more time um, with the doctor. And certainly that's going to vary from office to office. That's not standard practice, but it's, it's worth inquiring to see like, Hey, I don't, I, I'm going to need, I'm going to need 14 minutes, not seven. Like, can you either double up on an appointment for me? Or is there another time of day where you take longer appointments? Like any, any type of inquiry like that might, might prove to be beneficial for you too. Right. Absolutely. And I actually, myself, I've been known to run a class to teach people a basic understanding of their physiology. So in lab work and what it looks like, so they can go to their provider informed. Right. So I think all that's really important, but anyway, back to the cycle. <laughs> so we're talking about the menstrual phase here. And yeah. so when we are in our menstrual phase, when we are bleeding, um, what can we expect as far as our physiology goes? What's happening? What kind of nutrition should we be looking at? Uh, how about our exercise? Sure. So um, I'm going to preface all of this by saying it depends for each person. And I know that that's a horrible, vague answer, but it really does. Uh, I would say that there are general trends that we might think about adhering to and seeing like trying them on, right. It's like, you look, you're in, you're shopping in the mall. You see a nice dress. You're like, Hmm, I wonder if that'll fit me. You go in, you're like, Oh, actually I do like the way that this fits. I think I will buy this. Like that's kind of the same attitude I would like to sort of bring into this conversation because there's so much bio individuality. There's no cookie cutter. Like everyone should do this. Everyone should do that. Um, but I will say that, um, if you are someone who is, metabolically unwell. Uh, and that might look like 
insulin resistance that might look like having more weight or excess adiposity, let's say, or excess fat. Uh, I always like to try to say adipose tissue because sometimes people will like mix up the macronutrient with the phenotype. So, um, excess adiposity, let's say, uh, for women in particular, uh, that might also look like extra weight through the belly. Um, women typically, when we think about fat distribution on a female, um, for most of us under the influence of estrogen, we will typically deposit subcutaneous fat kind of in the bum thighs, uh, lower tummy area, which every, every woman hates, but it's actually metabolically like much better for you than depositing fat centrally, like through the waist, uh, on, on top of the organs, let's say. So if you have, if you're a woman who's maybe she's in perimenopause or menopause, and you are seeing that sort of, uh, what we call uh, ectopic fat distribution, which just means like distribution that is not, um, typically ascribed for the way that a female typically, uh, deposits fat. Like if you're seeing that kind of central, um, thickening, um, that might be something, um, to note, um, uh, as well. So when we're thinking, when, when is it coming back to, um, food, um, and, you know, metabolically unwell individuals, what I typically will try, and again, there's like an art and a science. So this is part art, part science. You do some labs and then you're, you think about an intervention. You might think about a therapeutic intervention. At least I find very good results, a therapeutic intervention of a ketogenic diet. So when I say therapeutic, I mean, temporary, I don't mean forever because I don't believe, uh, that women should be on a carbohydrate restricted diet forever. However, an initial intervention of that can be very, very useful in the same way that I have taken some long-term vegetarians who are depleted in minerals, let's say, uh, certain B vitamins or, or what have you, I will therapeutically put them on a meat, like I'll have them consume meat if they're okay with it. You know, sometimes religious, um, it, it might not be possible, but, um, so I would typically put someone therapeutically for about one cycle on a ketogenic style diet. Now I don't typically do the four to ones or three to ones that are kind of a classic keto style. I typically will do like a 60 to 70% fat ratio, 20 to 25% protein. And then, you know, the fill is carbohydrates. So whatever is left over there, like 10%, let's say carbohydrates, all the carbohydrates are vegetables. Um, so we're talking about green leafy vegetables. We're talking about peppers. We're talking about like, you know, if it fits your, like anything that's colorful, I want all the colors on, um, on your plate. And then just ensuring that we have enough protein, um, through the day that we're not, um, like not so much that we are initiating gluconeogenesis or kicking them out of ketosis. So we, we trying to get them into ketosis to kind of get those metabolic, years turning, let's say getting them a bit more, um, metabolically flexible. So their ability to burn both glucose and ketone bodies and free fatty acids as their, as their source. And then we get out of it. Um, so phase two is kind of what we're talking about here, where we might start cycling different ways of eating. You're sort of staying isocaloric for the first three weeks of your cycle. And we'll talk about the fourth week in a moment, but, um, you're changing the way that you, you're changing the way that your macros are structured to fit the hormonal environment that you're in. So in week one of your cycle, assuming that you are metabolically healthy, or maybe you've done phase one of the esteema diet already, which is what I just described. Um, you might consider actually coming back to a carbohydrate restricted, um, protocol just because you typically are not hungry the week of your bleed. Now, certainly the first day or two, I know that women have talked about intense chocolate cravings, um, and we can talk about mineral deficiencies, but that's most often, uh, mineral deficiencies. So I like to make sure that they're having enough magnesium, that they're having enough zinc, that they're having enough selenium. And usually when that's corrected for the chocolate cravings, we don't see them as often, or they're much less than what they were. So it's nice to kind of do a bit of a carbohydrate restricted diet in that first week, uh, in that, in the second week. So we've stopped bleeding. Uh, we're starting to see some hormones now rise. So we're seeing estrogen rise. We're seeing testosterone rise, um, in women. And I'll actually just stop here. Cause I'm sure that there's, um, 
there might be some questions, but I love to also always point out that testosterone is the most abundant sex hormone in women. We often make the, we'll say not mistake, but, uh, assumption that estrogen is the most common sex hormone. And it's not, if you look at the way testosterone is measured, it's often measured in nanograms per deciliter. Uh, estrogen is, is, is often measured in picograms per milliliter. There's a difference there, uh, like a 10 order difference there. So you might look at your labs and say, Oh, I have a uh, 40, I don't know, 40 on my testosterone, but I have 120 uh, an estrogen. Well, actually, if you were to bring them to the same, um, units, it would be 40 and 12, right? So, um, I just wanted to make sure that every testosterone, most abundant sex hormone, like double underline, I'm highlighting that point for everyone. Like it's take important. home point test It's important. It's it. And it's not only like testosterone is, you know, certainly, uh, involved like famously, you know, uh, it, you know, it, involved in libido and muscle, uh, mass, but for women, uh, I would say this is true for men too, but for women, as we move through perimenopause and, um, and menopause, where we see this marked decline in testosterone, often women will say things like, I don't feel like myself anymore. Like I'm not as happy. I don't take as many risks. I'm not as sharp. And that is, I mean, there's, there's many contributing factors to that, but one of those big contributing factors is a decline in testosterone levels. So I bring up testosterone because it is so important for women. It's often overlooked. We're often like, what about my estrogen? What about my progesterone? Yes. Those things are very important. But of course they are, but what's often overlooked is how important um, testosterone is to our personality, our happiness and our mental, like our affect. Okay. So back to week two, we will, we will get through four weeks. We will get through four weeks. It's so hard. <laughs> it's so hard. Yeah. So we see testosterone and estrogen rising. Typically a woman will feel like she has more energy this week. So she'll feel, and because we have these like kind of growth hormones, like estrogen growth hormone, testosterone growth hormone. Um, I typically like to have a higher protein diet this week, uh, and higher carbs as well. Um, partly to support weight training. So I will state my bias as I'm sure, uh, you may have stated on this show before weight training, absolutely fundamental for women. Don't be scared of lifting heavy, please lift heavy. Uh, don't do two pound dumbbells that are pink. Uh, and lift them 20 times, like lift something heavier 20 times if you must, but okay. So, uh, so we're lifting and part like that. I will usually like double the carbs and double the protein. So for most women, that looks like 40% of their total calories are now coming from protein, uh, 20 to 30% of their calories now are coming from carbohydrates, or it could actually be equal depending on how hard the person's training and what their goals are. Um, and then we pull the fat way down. So the fat is either halved or more than that. So depending on the woman, I might do a 40, 40, 20. So that's like 40 fat, 40 protein, 20 carbs, or I might swap the protein uh, pardon me. I might swap the carbohydrate and the fat. So it's like 40 carbs, 40 protein, uh, 20 fat, which is something that I most closely follow now, um, myself. Um, there's a couple of reasons for that, but I'll save it for when we get to the training piece, then we ovulate, right? So we, we, um, there's a whole cacophony, you know, there's this beautiful symphony of hormones, estrogen rises, luteinizing hormone rises. We release the beautiful egg from the follicle, which is called ovulation. The main point of your cycle is to ovulate. So again, another double underline and highlight it's not to bleed, even though we all know when we're bleeding. Um, and maybe we don't know necessarily, some of us don't know when we're ovulating, but the main point of your menstrual cycle is to ovulate, right? It's procreation of the species, whether or not you want it or not, that's what your body's designed to do. Right. And I know you're on a, on a roll here, but I want to kind of get some information from you here because we talked about females tracking their cycle. Now, yeah. this is something that I highly advocate for with women is because not only are we tracking our cycle to make sure that we're having a period every month and knowing how many days are involved, Honestly, I think we should all know when we're ovulating because you can have a period with the absence of ovulation. And if you're not ovulating, that could be a red flag. 
Yeah. Well, this is where, uh, I will often counsel a woman so you can track it and you can estimate it. Right. So a bleed is like very obvious. Like I'm bleeding that's day one of my cycle and on and on. Uh, ovulation is not quite as obvious. However, uh, if you start to get to know the cervical mucus, uh, secretions, uh, in your underwear. It's not just like annoying snot you know, that, you're, that your vagina is producing. Uh, this is actually secreted from the crypts of the cervix. Uh, you can, and, and it will change under the influence of estrogen as well. So um, what you'll find, obviously in bleed week, there's no, um, we're not looking for cervical fluid. We're just tracking blood. But then in that second week, as we start to see estrogen rising, you will also, the, there'll be like a day or two of like kind of dry days where you don't necessarily see anything after your uh, period is finished. And then as estrogen rises, you will start to see more and more like watery, almost like, um, yeah, it's almost, it's almost like water, um, in the, uh, in terms of the consistency of your cervical fluid. And then on, as, as you sort of go on with some of these trophic factors, we were talking about estrogens and testosterones, the what that watery consistency almost gets a little bit more tacky. Uh, it's been described and I describe it cause it looks like lotion. Like if you have like white, it's almost like lotiony, uh, you should be able to like stretch it between two fingers. It's kind of like an egg white kind of sticky consistency. Uh, the last day that you see that in your underwear is usually the day that you have ovulated. So you can get very, very, uh, we're kind of getting into, you know, fertility awareness method here, but um, that is probably one of the most accurate ways. And when you track that in concordance with your basal body temperature, so like your, your temperature also rises as well, um, right before you ovulate. And then there's like a marked drop off as well. You can, you can figure out when you've ovulated. Um, and certainly your cervical fluid will change with time, like with age. Uh, when, as we start to see sort of declining levels of estrogen, we will see less tackiness. We will see a less obvious change. So however old you are now, like form a relationship with your cervix. Like this is one of the, this is one of the most, I, I am actually, I have so much reverence for the clues that are like, it's like success leaves clues. We've all heard that kind of saying, I feel like this is our body's version of that, where your body's like gently nudging you saying today's the day, you know, like if you want to get pregnant, you know, now's the time, or if you don't want to get pregnant, you know, we stay away from, uh, you know, penetrative sex, let's say. Um, but your egg, you know, once that egg is released, and we see that change in basal body temperature and we see that change in tackiness uh, or the last day of that tackiness, let's say of the cervical fluid, the egg only has like, depending on your age, like four to 24 hours. Like it's not as long as at least I was led to believe I used to, I mean, I grew up Catholic. So I used to think that like someone sneezing on you, you could get pregnant. Like you could get pregnant all the time. Like you could go into a swimming pool and get pregnant. I literally thought that, um, as I was a child. So I think that, um, like you're only really like, and I'll extend that to like six days, like out of the full, you know, cycle 30 days, there's only six where you can really get pregnant. So it's the four to 24 hours after ovulation. And then if you've had penetrative sex prior to ovulation, sperm can live for up to like seven, six, like six days, right? So call it six days in total where you can really, and they will, I mean, also sperm amazing. So sperm, you know, once, uh, the ejaculate is in the body, like that sperm, like packs a picnic, you know, like they <laughs> pack a little suitcase, like they are good for six days. Like, I think that's incredible. So six days in total out of our cycle where we can get, uh, pregnant. So I like back to the nutrition, higher protein, um, to support weight training. I also think just to, for brevity, I think training heavy all through the cycle is really important, but this week in particular, I like sort of classic heavy lifting. You know, when we're talking about resistance training, I like to come back to that five to eight rep range as heavy as you can. You're kind of nearing muscle failure at that five to six kind of rep range, uh, so that we can actually drive you know, muscle hypertrophy, which for every woman, I'm sure you've talked about this on the show before, mm -hmm. but for every woman, this is such a major factor for aging. Well, is to have 
metabolically active tissue. And we, there are, you know, muscle and bone, these are metabolically active, particularly muscle, uh, you know, glucose gobblers, um, helps with your carbohydrate tolerance, helps with your metabolism, all the things. I mean, it also mm-hmm. helps you look good. All, you know, you look good in a bikini, you look good in your jeans, all the stuff, but, uh, it also helps you feel better. It helps to mitigate some of those symptoms that we, that we tend to experience in perimenopause and menopause. I love all of this. So yeah, we have now gone into week two. What can we expect with week three? So we've ovulated and now we actually see some of the hormonal conditions in week three that look like week one. So right before you ovulate, we have this re- like really high level of estrogen and then it tanks. Same thing and in week one, right? So we have, you know, from week four, which we'll get to in a second, high levels of estrogen, and then it tanks. So we see this low transient, low estrogen uh, environment first half of week three. And then we start to see a new hormone um, in the cycle uh, that we haven't seen up until this point, And that's progesterone. So progesterone, progestation, it's our pro-pregnancy hormone. It helps if there is a fertilized egg to keep um, the egg fertilized until other faculties can take over. Um, so progesterone is involved. There are many things that progesterone, um, does, but it helps us feel calm. Uh, it helps to activate, um, neurotransmitters and some of the inhibitory neurotransmitters in the brain, particularly GABA. So if you are a woman who has trouble sleeping, um, many women will report that in this third week that they are getting kind of the best sleep of their lives under the influence of uh, progesterone. So it makes us feel calm, chills us out a little bit. Um, It will also inhibit uh, when you have adequate levels of progesterone, it will also inhibit uh, more estrogen. So there's kind of like a positive feedback loop, like estrogen doesn't go unchecked uh, in a normal scenario. Um, it can stimulate appetite. So a lot of women will start to feel cravings and hungrier towards the end of their third week. And then absolutely. So in their fourth week, um, it will slow down your digestion. So you may find that your bowel movements change. So maybe the frequency is different. Maybe the uh, the type of stool that you're passing looks a little different where, you know, the perfect stool, uh, I, I think it was Sarah Godfrey when she was on my show, she was describing it and I've used it ever since. Cause it's so perfect. It's like, you want your poop to look like the perfect Olympic dive. You want it to be straight <laughs> one piece and like minimal splash. Right. So that's like the perfect bowel movement. Uh, but you may see that change into kind of smaller, more dehydrated, let's say, um, uh, I call them little rabbit poos, like these little kind of dried up little bits. So mm-hmm. making sure that because your digestive system is slowing, um, we want to make sure that you're getting adequate water, adequate fiber. Um, so these are some, this is, these are some of the kind of changes that we might see with more progesterone. And then into week four, of course, it's like highest level of progesterone, highest level of estrogens for about the first half of the week. And then there's that market drop off again. So in terms of training and nutrition, um, because that week three often replicates this, a similar hormonal environment as week one, you can go low carb a little bit if you want, if you enjoy that. Cause a lot of women really enjoy the clarity, the mental clarity, the mood, the focus that having a low carbohydrate diet can afford them. So many women, you know, and depending on, you know, the way that you metabolize carbohydrates can make you feel very sleepy, very sluggish. So, um, a lot of women really like the feeling of keto, but knowing that they can't be in keto all the time, this is another great time to kind of replicate that. Um, and then training, uh, usually I like, I like heavy training all through the cycle, but it's just how close are you getting to muscle failure with the, with the, uh, with how heavy the weights are. So I mentioned in week two, I like them like in the five to eight rep range. So it's like as heavy as you possibly can go for like five reps, right? Or eight reps in week one and three, I like to mirror somewhere between eight and 12 reps. Again, you shouldn't be able to do more than 12 uh, if you are the weights too light. Um, And then in that fourth week, from a nutrition perspective, because so many women are they have so much more cravings. They tend to want the chocolate. Um, what I will 
tell a lot of women to do is actually bump up their calories by a little bit and increase the relative amounts of protein that they're consuming. So why do we do that? Protein is very satiating. Uh, there's a high thermic effect, uh, of food of protein, right? So, you know, you might eat a hundred calories, let's say of pure protein, but you know, because it takes so much energy to sort of cleave the, the protein into the, you know, into the constituent amino acids, you might get let's say 70 or 70, like depends on the meat, but like, you know, depends on the protein, I should say, but mm -hmm. let's say 70 to 75 calories of that 100 is what you're going to be able to take in. Mm -hmm. Um, and then more carbohydrates and more total calories. So it kind of looks again, like week two. So we have a higher protein, higher carbohydrate count, depending on the age and the fitness level of the individual, I might do sort of equal parts protein and carbs, um, or I'll do uh, almost equal parts fat and protein, kind of depending on the person and what their goal is and how they feel. Um, and, you know, taking into account cholesterol and all the, you know, all the labs that we might be working on. But um, that's sort of how I structure a cycling uh, regimen. And then the last piece that I didn't mention is training in week four. So a lot of women feel very, there's a lot of water retention, uh, that women can experience, um, again, affect sleep, they're warmer, you know, a little bit more tired. So I do like a drop in the weight count, but the reps then go up. So we're not quite at the two pound pinkies yet, but you know, maybe you're doing like 20 reps, 15, 20, 30 reps, um, of something. So it's a lighter lighter weight. And then that can also, because you're doing more reps, um, that can also help decrease some of the, like the inflammation and the kind of, you know, ickiness, uh, that many women experience in that week before they bleed. Mm -hmm. I know for myself personally, week four is usually actually my week week, right? My week W E A H W E A K week. Um, Your week week. Yeah, my week that. week. Um, it's so funny because, like, say I, I mean, I keep very good track of my cycle, and I'm a power lifter, but like. Uh, for example, this is a scary one, but um, one week before the world championships, I was getting ready to start my period. I've been on my period for every single competition I've ever done, ladies, in case you were ever wondering. That's how it law, works. Right? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. <laughs> so we don't train the, the week leading up to a competition. And it was my last training day before the meet. And... I bombed every single lift, even the, even the lightweight ones. Right. And this has kind of been a consistent thing. And it was awful. Like, like some of my teammates were like hiding behind the squat rack and like, you know, covering their face and stuff. Cause they knew I was going into the biggest event of my life and I couldn't hit even the easy weights. So I don't know if it's a, a normal thing, but for me, a couple days prior to starting my period, I am weak. <laughs> it just, it seems like everything kind of drops down for me. And clumsy and clumsy. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of women will also report feeling weaker, but also clumsier uh, in the second in the second half of the cycle, but generally we see it in the fourth week. Um, and that's partially because in the first half of your cycle, including bleed week. So the fact that you were able to compete on your period in some ways is an advantage versus in the second half, but for the, in the follicular phase, and in particular in week two, because we see this apex, we see this like peak of estrogens and testosterone, your motor cortex is, is, is firing on all cylinders, so to speak. We have, um, uh, receptors, not just, you know, it's not just our ovaries and, uh, you know, muscles, let's say that are sensitive to these, uh, these hormones. It's they're all through the body. There's been, there's been estrogen receptors, uh, detected on the lungs. Like they're, it's all over the place. So when you think about, the follicular phase where we see this, we see this amplification of these anabolic hormones, the estrogens, the testosterones, it's a great act. It's a great time to be going for PRs. It's a great time to actually be starting a new motor pattern in your luteal phase. So after you ovulate those 14, let's say to 16 days, uh, after you ovulate terrible time to start a new motor pattern and you'll find that you're weak and clumsy. Um, so it's not, it's not, you, it's your hormones, right? So I, I always want to give people permission to, because sometimes people will misinterpret their experience. They'll be like, God, I'm such a fool or I'm such a klutz or I'm such a loser. Like, why am I not able to remember? Why did I walk into this room again? Or, you know, all, you know, it's like, oh yeah, it's because I was trying to get my 
you know, keys or something, right? So we want, um, we want the women that are listening to your show, um, not to misinterpret their experience as something inherently wrong with them, which is what women do all the time. We go on a diet, it doesn't work. And it's like, Oh God, I'm just, I didn't have the willpower or I didn't have the, the chutzpah, or I didn't have the, whatever to, to follow it through. And when it, it, in, in actual fact, it was, it just wasn't designed for you. You know, um, I, I think that men don't have this, um, some, some do, but I would say more consistently across the board, when I speak to women, we are very quick to blame ourselves. Mm -hmm. So just wanted to piggyback on your example and give the women that may be listening, like permission to, um, just to be a little gentler with themselves in that week. It's, it's all good. Absolutely. Well, I would like to reverse just a little bit to some of the nutrition tips you were giving along the way, because there are times in our cycle where we are more insulin sensitive versus insulin resistant. And sometimes I feel that that could impact our cravings as well. So could you dive into that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So I typically, we are typically more insulin sensitive, uh, in the first half of the cycle, part of that is due to testosterone, which is, you know, back to my earlier example, I was saying to you, you know, guys who we have, you know, about four times less, you know, four to 10 times, depending on the guy, less testosterone, uh, than our male counterparts do. And so it's sometimes it can seem like if you are in a heterosexual, uh, relationship here, um, and you're, and you're a woman and you are, uh, or you're chromosomally XX and you're in a relationship with an XY with, well, maybe say it like that, um, that your, that your male partner, um, can kind of eat whatever he wants. And then all he has to do is go to the gym and he turns into the Hulk. And you're like, well, what the hell? Like I've been squatting the same damn weight for however, like I've been doing the same. I mean, personally for me, my, my, uh, tragic flaws, like the overhead shoulder press. Like, I feel like I've been at the same damn weight on my overhead shoulder press for like a year, you know? So you could, but like my, my partner can be like, oh yeah, I'll just put like, you know, I'll just put like a couple, just another 45, like just another, I'll just put another plate on and I'll just kind of see. Right. So, um, so our back to like, you know, our insulin sensitivity, uh, we tend to be a bit more insulin sensitive first half of the cycle, a little bit more insulin insensitive, or maybe said another way, insulin resistant um, in the second half of the cycle. Uh, in both cases, I would say that we want to be prioritizing movement. And so that's why we still talk about movement. There are some people uh, who I just flat out disagree with them where they talk about this idea that you should just take the luteal phase off. Like you should just not be, you should not train. Uh, some people don't think you should train on your period. Some people don't think you should train the week before your period. Some people don't think you should train in week three and four. And it's like, okay, well, when are we going to do anything? You know, like I, <laughs> like we have to train some time. And I would actually argue that the times where we are more insulin insensitive, or we have that tendency towards that insulin resistant is actually the most important time for us to be moving because insulin resistance, if we look at Dr. Um, uh, Dr. Shulman's work, Dr. Uh, I think it's Ger Gerard or Gerald Shulman, insulin resistance starts usually in the muscle, in the myocyte. So you go for a weight training session and maybe it's week four and maybe you're, it's your week, week, as you were saying, uh, and you don't have the, you know, the, the faculties to hit a PR. You don't have to just drop the weights, like drop the weight level. So you don't injure yourself, punch out a higher rep range. So maybe instead of doing five, you're doing 15 or 20 and that movement is going to fire up the motor cortex. You're going to have, you're going to have more blood flow all the way through Yes, you're going to transiently maybe increase your stress a little bit because exercise is a stress, but the adaptation to that is going to make you more insulin sensitive and you're going to feel better. Like always before a workout, like maybe 70% of my workouts, I don't feel like doing them, but I've mm -hmm. never, after I finished one, regretted it. Never. Mm -hmm. Right. So for the women who, uh, well, all women who may have, um, more inertia, like they have to maybe work themselves up to get to the gym. Um, I would say first, don't rely on motivation. Just do it. Don't think about it and be easy on yourself. It's okay to be light. It's okay to go lighter. Mm -hmm. And I, I say that because 
I find that there's two camps, women who are afraid to lift heavy because they think that they're going to turn into the Hulk, which is factually like almost like statistically impossible. There are some women who can, but most of us cannot. And then there are the women like myself who, uh, you know, the type A personalities will say, um, who want to gamify lifting. And it's like, how much can I push this? How hard can I push this? Um, and that's totally me. So like, you know, ego is your enemy in the gym. So you want to check the ego at the door and just do what you can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So all of this, I 100% agree with and love that you're saying it because I mean, muscle is our metabolic currency, right? Um, and so when people don't realize the more muscle you have, the more, more metabolically sensitive or efficient you are, you can bring in more calories. I mean, what drives people more than telling them they can eat more? Most people want to eat more. They want, you know, and then in same goes to those that are also trying to put on muscle. If you are not eating enough, your body is not stupid. It's not going to put on something that costs it more money. And so this is great for people in both directions. You want to eat more? Okay. Have more muscle. Okay. So, uh, it's, it's a really great thing that you touched on that because I think it's really important. I would also add on to, so muscle, absolutely metabolic currency. So is the scaffolding that ties the muscles together. And I'm, of course I'm referring to the bones, right? So our bones, as we age again, uh, we want to be thinking about dense, thick, bones. And the more that you resistance train, certainly you're going to have hypertrophy of the muscle, but you're also going to drive through a variety of factors, uh, fibroblastic growth factor and all the things that you're going to be also driving bone density. Mm -hmm. So for women in their forties and their fifties, this is of utmost concern. We always hear about, you should take your calcium, which is not how you're going to get dense bones, by the way, don't do that. Um, and you'll, you'll end up sort of depositing the, the calcium. What we are actually seeing is it ends up depositing in the arteries, which is absolutely not what you want to be doing, but I digress. Um, the, the, the weightlifting, uh, is going to drive bone density, right? Even if you're not able, like, let's say you've come off an injury, you just had a hysterect, like whatever it is, and you're only able to do a calisthenic, which is just your own body weight. That is still incredible for you. And then you work up from there. Like you start at the top and then you, and then you go up from there. But when we are weightlifting, we are taking care of that metabolically, uh, costly, as you said, or active, uh, tissue and the scaffolding that holds it all together. The bones, the, the ligaments, the discs in the spine, the tendons, these are all very, very important considerations as we age, because when we're thinking about, um, you know, some of the things that can happen as we age, certainly the big four, we have the cardiovascular disease, the cerebrovascular disease, the type two diabetes, the cancer, all of these lifestyle diseases. And we want to be thinking about physical ailments as well, right? So if you fall and you have frail bones, you're going to, it's going to, you're going to be hard pressed to recover from that. And not only do we see changes, you know, if you get injured, of course you have to rest and recovery, maybe there's surgery involved, but you're also going to have cognitive changes from that as well. One of the, um, um, when we are thinking about fractures of the big long bones, so like the femur or even like the pelvis, we often see, uh, changes in, uh, we, we see a cognitive decline as well as, you know, the physical rehabilitation, the physical loss that we see. So we see the, you know, we've all seen like the skinny arm after it gets out of the cast, you're going to see that withered muscle and the, the frail bone, but we're also going to see changes in brain volume, which is something we want to be thinking about preserving as we age as well. Mm -hmm. And I love that you also mentioned that because I always tell people, I'm like, you guys might make fun of me now, but I won't be that old lady with a broken hip. And, yeah. uh, back when I used to see patients, I was in dentistry for a really long time. And, uh, I had one lady, she's like, yeah, I've been going to the gym. I've never done it in my whole life, but my doctor said I had osteoporosis and he said he wasn't going to give me a prescription. He wanted me to go lift some weights. And I was like, yeah, it made me yeah. so happy to hear that, that it, that, yeah. you know, there are more and more people recommending exercise versus a pill. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Good on him. So 
I mean, I don't want to keep you on here forever. If there was one thing that I could get out there to all of my listeners today, what would you tell them? Oh gosh. One thing, such a hard question. I would say, um, I would say, can I do two things? Can I break the rules? Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll break the rules. I'm a rule breaker. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. So the first thing is track your cycle. If you are in your, if you are in your fertile years and that includes perimenopause. So up until about, you know, early fifties, you should be tracking your cycle because then you can see when there are changes that happen, right? So maybe you used to be like a 29.5 day girl and now you've turned into a 27 day girl. And maybe now, you know, over time you can kind of see that maybe that shortening or that uh, expansion, let's say um, of, of the cycle. So I would say track. Um, that's like the number one thing that I still hear 40 year olds, you know, I've had a 50 year old still who's still menstruating, like just getting into tracking, uh, her cycle now. So track your cycle. It gives you so much data. You learn so much about yourself and then you can start to parse like, Oh, was I, you know, was that commercial really, really sad? Or was I just about to bleed? You know, like, you know, you can kind of start to understand the lens, the way that these hormones whisper to us and affect the, our perception and our, the way that we show up in the world. So that's number one. The, the second thing I would say, uh, and I've mentioned it, but I think it's worth re-mentioning is just to have, I mean, I just feel, and maybe we're kind of getting into spirit and woo here, but uh, I, I have so much reverence for the female form. I think that, um, you know, we've been called many things over many years, the weaker sex, we've been, you know, the rag, you know, she's on the, this and that. And I think that it is our temple. It is a holy place worth worshiping. Um, and so just maybe, maybe this conversation and some of the others that you've had on the show, uh, will stimulate or just spark the, uh, idea of how incredibly amazing our bodies are. They come in all shapes and sizes, all, you know, colors and, and I, and the way that we, um, the design, the beautiful design that we have, I just would love for people to have a little bit more reverence, uh, for the body. And that's a message not only to your listeners, but also to myself, because I can be cerebral. I can just be in my head all the time and not in my body. And I think to get into your body and to be like, wow, this is like my home, you know, like this is like the only place I'm ever really going to live. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that's wishy-washy. I don't know, but it just, it just means a lot to me because I, I feel like if more women just had some, a bit more awe, uh, and curiosity about their body rather than like, Oh, it's broken. It's my stupid hormones and aging, blah, blah, blah. I think that we might take a different approach to caring for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I, I appreciate that because sometimes I think many women treat their body like this object, right? I mean, even myself for many years when I was in bodybuilding, you can probably totally relate to this, but it was look in the mirror and it was like, oh, I have to fix this, right? Yeah, it, yeah. It, Fix this or grow this or do this or do that. And when I started actually like communicating with it, like it was another person only not, you know, like this probably sounds so bad, but, but like talking to it in a nice way and being like, hey, you do a lot for me. So here, you know, and, and finding all those things that I loved about it rather than the things that I hated, that's when everything changed for myself. Or just, I love what you said, what has been, and I'll add to that. What has been helpful for me is sometimes I'll just be like, what do you need girl? Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> You're like, what do you need? You know? So that yeah. I can become more of a, an agent, let's say, or protector of my body rather than like throwing insult after insult and working until my back is killing me and my eyes are crossing or whatever it is. So, um, right. yeah, yeah. I love that. And I don't know how many new listeners we have on here, but when I go on and talk about my health journey on other people's podcasts and stuff, that's one huge thing I always say is like, I had to repair my body. And part of that was like, being like, okay, I know I was a jerk to you. So now we're just going to roll with whatever you've got to do in order to fix yourself. And that means I'm not going to be mean to you anymore. I love that. Beautiful. <laughs> well, how can my listeners find you? Oh, well, you can, uh, I am a podcast host, as I mentioned, uh, as you are my, I have a weekly podcast It's called better with Dr. Stephanie. So you can tune in there. We're on YouTube. We're on all the places that you're listening here. Um, and then you can find me on Instagram. I'm pretty active 
there. I try to post at, I try to post once a day, at least once a day, or I'm in my stories. So you can find me at Dr. Stephanie Estima, um, on Instagram and what's the other, Oh, maybe the book. So the book, um, is called the Betty body. We named it Betty after the listeners of the show better. So our fans of better are our Bettys. So better bought the, the Betty body. And we talk about some of the concepts that we've talked about today just in, in more detail. So talked about nutrition and training and sleep and sex and orgasms and neurotransmitters and all, all the things, all the things, uh, are in there. So that's my, that's my, my other unofficial child is my book. I love it. Well, I will put all that information in the show notes and I really appreciate you joining me today. Thank you. It was wonderful. Thanks for tuning in. To learn more about me, my online programs, or to inquire about coaching, please visit www.connynightingale.com. And remember, nothing in the contents of this show is intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any illness, and it is for entertainment purposes only. Please consult with your primary care physician before implementing any new health protocols.